Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. If you didn't already pick up an outline sheet, the ushers are going to come by and provide those for you if you just wave them over. We're taking our Bibles, please, and turning to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. You know, when you think about it, the whole world is looking for acceptance. Boys and girls look for acceptance on the playground. Then they become teens and they become very aware of the acceptance or the non-acceptance of their peers. Even people who go to the workplace on Monday morning seek and desire and need the acceptance of their fellows at work. This evening, as we open our Bibles together to the book of Ephesians, we learn of an acceptance that is permanent, an acceptance that's eternal, an acceptance that's glorious and heavenly. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, after all, says, we're accepted in the Beloved. I'd like to focus on that this evening as we open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Accepted in the Beloved, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. The Apostle Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell. And as he writes from a Roman prison cell, the Spirit of God moves in his heart to graciously, gratefully, enthusiastically express some of the deepest, most wonderful truths about our salvation to be found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 down to verse 14, is the longest single sentence anywhere in the Bible. In fact, most people believe it's the longest sentence in all of the ancient world. 202 words in this phenomenal sentence. Not that it's without order, as the Apostle Paul writes, his thoughts are divided into three very parallel thoughts, three stanzas, if you will. In the first stanza, which we review this evening, verses 4 through 6, he's looking at the past, and he looks at the past, and he praises the Father who planned our salvation. After all, 1 John 4 and verse 14 says, it's the Father that sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father planned our salvation. Then in the second stanza, he's going to speak about the present, about the Son who provides for our salvation. Jesus had said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his sheep. It's the Son who provides through His blood for our salvation. And then this wonderful song of joy is going to end with the third stanza, that looks toward the future. And as the Apostle Paul looks toward the future, his focus is on the Spirit of God, who even now is perfecting our salvation. This is spoken of in other passages. For instance, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, we read about the sanctification of the Spirit, how the Spirit of God is working in the hearts of our believers, of believers. When we speak about salvation, we do well to lift our hearts in praise 
and rejoice in what God has accomplished for us. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's exactly what's happening in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, verse 3, in heavenly places. And the spiritual blessings spoken of here are not as compared to physical. They are rather the blessings that the Spirit of God gives to the people of God. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, the Spirit of God is linking together precious jewels of God's grace that make every believer rich. And so we discover in verse 18 that Paul is actually praying that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we might know what's the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. H.A. Ironside for many years was known as a faithful Bible teacher, pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. Ironside wrote about a man who was living in poverty in Montana until some people came over from England looking for him, and when they found him, they explained to him that he actually was related to some people in England and that they had left their entire fortune to him. He bought a new suit, he bought a plane ticket, and before he boarded the plane to head over to England, someone asked him, what are your plans? And he said, I plan to take possession of my estate. How blessed he was to go from poverty to riches. In truth, how blessed we are to go from poverty to riches, the riches of God's grace. And the Holy Spirit in this text is revealing the treasures that are owned by everyone who is in Christ. They are wonderful riches that have been provided for those who are believers. My maternal grandfather was the manager of the vaults of the First National Bank, Boston. He went to work every morning, getting on a bus to get on the elevator car, which other people would call the subway, but in Boston it's above the ground most of the time. He got on the elevator car and he went into Boston. He got off the, the train at his workplace. He went into the First National Bank and his duty throughout the day was to welcome to the bank those who had their personal deposits and those who had placed things in their safety deposit boxes. He was the manager of the vaults, a very responsible position, and he valued it much. I feel like a manager of the vaults this evening as we open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. The bank balance is declared in verse 1, we have all spiritual blessings. And we know the vault is secure. After all, verse 3 says it's in heavenly places. And how trustworthy the wonderful keeper of the vault. It's in Christ Jesus. In this 202-word sentence, there are some undeniably difficult doctrines that need to be explored. But in their exploration, we come up saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You know, there are those who are called scuba diver preachers. A scuba diver preacher is somebody who goes down deep, stays down long, and comes up dry. This is the type of passage that can call for scuba diver preaching. But in making this passage practical, we discover the wonderful treasures that God has given to us. In verses 4 through 6, we investigate what the Father has given to us in eternity past. And we stop and discover, first of all, that we're chosen by the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 introduces us to some of the infinite mysteries of God. And we have finite minds, and so we confess from the beginning 
that we, humanity, locked in the continuum of time and space, will never truly have the capacity, listen, to understand the infinity of God who always lives in eternity. But in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we read that God has blessed us. He's chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Now this is not a new thought. In fact, it's a thought that Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, actually wrote about way back in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8 and verse 22. Solomon wrote, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way before His works of old. Solomon, in all of his exploration of great truths too deep for me to ever understand, the wisest man who ever lived was exploring the same truth that's being expressed in Ephesians 1 and verse 3, that God has chosen us before the foundation of the earth. Take your Bible, put a mark here in Ephesians 1. Come over with me for just a moment to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And be encouraged. Because while the Apostle Paul was so thoroughly trained as a rabbi and possessed of such a great mind that he could string together a logical sentence that has 202 words, when we open to 1 Peter, we're opening to the writing of another God-inspired New Testament author, but this author did not have the rabbinic training of Paul. This author was a fisherman. In fact, when the religious leaders of Jerusalem interviewed Peter, they recognized that, they, that he was an ignorant man, but that he'd been with the Lord. But the Spirit of God taught this ignorant man the same truth that we explore this evening, for he said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, for as much as we know that we're not redeemed. I went to 1 Peter. Uh, yeah, that's right. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. We're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold from our vain conversation received by tradition from our fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, here it comes, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Peter was exploring this same truth that we look at this evening, the truth that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Come back with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and as we begin to explore what do we mean by chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Let me just say from the outset that it wasn't the purpose of the Spirit of God in giving to us this blessed truth for us to be divided by debates. It was the purpose of the Spirit of God for us to explore this truth that our hearts might be warmed and rejoice. Chosen before the foundation of the earth. This is a wonderful family truth. And so we share it in the atmosphere of a family this evening, and we realize that there are great theological schisms that swirl around this text. And rather than focusing on the schisms this evening, I think we need to say praise the Lord for this text. For after all, a balanced biblical view of what we read here requires an understanding of the entire revelation of God. And in the entirety of that revelation of God, we understand first that we serve a God who desires that all be saved. Let's start there. We serve a God who desires that all be saved. 
That's spoken of throughout the New Testament. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God will have all men be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Now there's no way to read limited atonement into that verse because it's not there. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And the testimony of Scripture is God wants all men to be saved. So 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter and the 17th verse, we read, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Now I have witnessed those who have heard the invitation of the Spirit of God to come and trust Jesus Christ. I've witnessed the stubbornness of hearts, the tenacity of stubborn wills against the invitation of God's grace. It's caused me great grief when the offer of salvation can be given to all. And when a person understands and even acknowledges that they're a sinner and recognizes that God in his wonderful, glorious plan sent Jesus Christ into this world to die upon the cross for sinners. And when they're asked, would you like to trust Jesus Christ as Savior? And they stubbornly shake their head, no, I've witnessed it. Not just with strangers, but in our own family. And it's heartbreaking. There are many who, like Agrippa of old in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28, said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But this I know, God wants all people everywhere to be saved. So we hear the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ who said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest those who are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee like a hen gathers her chickens unto her, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you empty, desolate. We serve a God that desires that all will be saved. But simultaneously, when we read Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we read of God choosing us before the foundation of the, of the earth. So we can say this, we also serve a God who chooses to place some in Christ who chooses to place some in Christ. And while that may sound like a contradictory truth, it is nevertheless the truth that God's Word shares. So we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. There's no need for explanation to that verse. And we read in 1 Peter 1 and verse 2, that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. There's no need to explain that verse either. In fact, it's often in the explanation that we find ourselves in trouble. The poet said, "'Tis not I to choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. His heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me." God chose Abraham. He didn't choose Potiphar. God chose Moses. He didn't choose Pharaoh. God chose Paul. Somehow, in his divine sovereignty, he did not choose Pilate. You see, the work of choosing is a divine right. 
Isaiah 43 and verse 20, God declares, Israel, my people, my chosen. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, we're a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. And by now, there are those who are saying, Pastor Phelps, that sounds a lot like Calvinism. Oh, but before, we sounded a lot like Arminianism. That's exactly the point. That's called Biblicism. Pastor Phelps, are you declaring both things to be true? That's all I can do. They're both in the Bible. And so we declare the Bible. And when we say, but I can't understand it, that's all right. God is God. In Isaiah chapter 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Take your Bibles, put a mark here in Ephesians. Come back with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, the Lord Jesus is speaking to people in his day, people to whom he's given a a real and legitimate offer of salvation. And what does he say to those to whom he's been speaking in John 5, beginning in verse 37? Jesus says, and the Father himself, which has sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. and Ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him you believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. Was Jesus legitimately giving them an offer? To accept him as Savior? Yes. And would they all come? No. And is there a tension in that? Yes, there's a tension in that. And so as we come to the tension of that, why the tension? Frankly, friends, only by pride comes contention. And often in my pride, trying to discover on which side do I stand? Do I stand on the side of God choosing or the side of me receiving? In that tension, I find myself often very provoked. The Bible does not explain the tension. The Bible just declares the truth. So the truth declared tonight is God desires all to be saved. And the truth proclaimed in God's word this evening is, and he chooses in Christ before the foundation of the world. I love the simplicity of the old southern preacher who said, the devil voted, and God voted, and then I voted. And the majority won. The devil's always voting no. God is always voting yes. And when you cast your ballot, someone wins. The first blessing that's provided by the Father in eternity past, according to this passage, is the blessing of being chosen. Chosen before the foundation of the the world. Pastor, does that mean I have a choice in it? That's exactly what we said. There's a choice in it declared throughout Scripture. Whoever will may come. That's not a false choice. Does that mean that God truly chose and truly elected? Yes. How do I explain it? Friend, we don't explain it. We just accept it by faith. And when we accept it by faith, we say this is what the Bible teaches. And we want to be careful in a balanced approach to what the Bible teaches. Otherwise, we find ourselves terribly divided and terribly hurt. But when we come back to Ephesians chapter 1, 
We discover that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Not only has the Father in eternity past done this wonderful work of choosing, but the Father along the way has a will for those that he chooses that we be changed. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Those who are in Christ are mysteriously, wonderfully, undeniably changed. What a blessing it was this evening to hear testimonies of people in the meeting before this service who are considering church membership here at Colonial, testimonies of changed lives. Of I was once this, but by God's grace I am no longer. And the only explanation for it is the work of God the Father through the Spirit in changing my life. No one meets the Lord and goes away the same. When we're in Christ, we come to know this blessing that the Father removes our sin. We are now holy and without blame before Him in love. And I want you to notice very carefully verse 4. Holy and without blame before Him in love. He's speaking about our present condition. Now it's worth following right now. Holy and without blame before Him is not the prospect of our condition while one day we will be glorified. But holy and without blame before Him is our present condition right now. That when you come to trust Jesus Christ as Savior, before God because you're in Christ, because you've been baptized in His death and raised in His glorious resurrection, you are now, according to the book of Ephesians, seated in the heavenlies and in the eyes of God, you are holy and without blame before Him in love right now. Our present condition. How did that happen? Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. 1 John 4 and verse 17, herein is love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, speaking of Christ, so are we, only in this world. Being in Christ means that before God, we stand before the judgment of God as without sin, holy and blameless. Now, Pastor Phelps, I can't explain that either. I can't either, but I can rejoice in it. But this is my present condition. No, it doesn't mean that on earth I'm without sin. For if we say we're without sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But we can say this, that being in Christ makes my heavenly condition secure and makes my heavenly condition wonderful. I love 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, we walk walk through the living room, and it says, if we say we're without sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. If we want living room fellowship while we walk in this earth, we confess our sins. That's a constant. And in that constant confession of sins, there's a constant cleansing of the Spirit of God so that we can walk in the fellowship that he provides in the living room. I grew up in a home where mom was from Boston. We had a parlor. I knew when we went into the the parlor, for those of you who don't don't know New England, I knew when we went into the parlor, we were in trouble. 
That was not a place where kids were welcome. That was a place where guests were invited. Even so, we have a living room. The Spirit of God abides with us, and the promise of Christ that He's with us to the end of the age. But sometimes, Jesus explained that our feet get dirty. First John 1 says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But there's not just a living room, there's a courtroom. There's a heavenly courtroom. And 1 John chapter 2 talks about that. 1 John chapter 2 says, and if we sin, we have, right now, presently, in an ongoing fashion, we have an advocate. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So while I'm sinning on earth and grieving the Spirit of God and the Father, and out of fellowship with my Lord, I have the promise that if I come acknowledging my sin, my sins can be forgiven, and I can enjoy the warmth of that living room fellowship. But as to my status and my state and my standing in heaven, I have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he's always saying, put that one on my account and that one too. For he died for all my sins, the past, the present, and the future. So that even now, in heavenly places, which is what Ephesians wants us to learn, even now our standing is secure. The Bible tells us that we have been chosen of him, and even now we're holy and without blame before him in love. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is a mystery deeper than my mind can absorb, but one that my heart finds to be very warming, that right now, even when I know that tomorrow I'm likely to sin again, my eternal security is not based on my activity. It's based on the promise of God's Word that we're secure in the heavens. The Father, you see, removes our sins. This is a positional truth. The poet has said, so nigh, so very nigh to God, nigher I cannot be, for in the person of the Son, I am as nigh as He. So dear, so very dear to God, more dear I cannot be. The love wherein He loved the Son is His same love for me. The Father removes our sins, and the Father remakes us as sons. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, we're remade by the Father. How does that happen? Well, He states it through the work of predestination. There we go again, Pastor Phelps. That's another one of those words that causes great division. Well, it shouldn't. The word predestination is pretty simple to figure out. Pre means before, and you can hear the word destiny. Before our destiny has been set, we're predestinated to the adoption of sons. That shouldn't be a controversy. That should be a comfort. Romans chapter 8 says it this way in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the final point of my destiny. Let me go back over that again. I am predestinated, according to this passage, under the adoption of children. and We'll cover that in a minute. But Romans chapter 8 explains the thought beforehand of the destiny that's sure. We're predestinated, he says in Romans chapter 8, we're predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. Those who are saved are going to 
end up in the destination of being like Jesus. Now, there's a lot of controversy when people come to this idea of predestination. Does that mean that God has predestinated some to be saved and others to be lost? That thought's called double predestination. And nowhere in the Bible will you ever find God speaking of the predestination of the lost. He speaks only of the predestination of the believer. Why? Because it's the predestination of the believer that brings great glory and great praise. We're predestinated to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8 says. When you get on an airplane, you check the ticket. Usually they're checking it for you. A couple of years back, I was on an airplane from Chicago to Indianapolis. I knew I was on the right airplane. They checked my ticket and scanned me. I got under the seat. I texted my wife. It was a Saturday evening. And I said to her, you can pick me up at the Indianapolis airport about 10.30. I texted her and I said, I'm on the plane. They're closing the door. Goodbye. And when the airplane landed, I woke up. I was sleeping. And when I woke up, they said, welcome to Cincinnati. And I thought, did I get on the wrong plane? I was in a fog. And then they explained, I wasn't in a fog. Indianapolis was in a fog, and I was in Cincinnati. So I texted my wife at the airport, and I said, hey, honey, they just dropped us down in Cincinnati, and they said they'll get us on a plane tomorrow morning. Unfortunately, that will be after the morning service is over. I don't think there's anybody ready to preach. She said, what should we do? I said, well, you got a GPS? Toggle in Cincinnati. We got home in the wee hours. It was a long night. You know what I know? The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Spirit will never do that to us. The destiny of the believer is the image of Christ. No bypass along the way. In fact, this passage not only talks about our predestination to be like Jesus, but it talks about the work of adoption. The Father remakes us as sons through the work of predestination. He knows what his target goal is for us before the journey begins. When we accept Jesus Christ as Savior at the other end of the journey, we're glorified and we're like Jesus. Old things completely have been passed away. And how does this happen? Well, there's a legal work that he does, and that legal work is the work of adoption. Having predestinated us unto adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. The concept of adoption in verse 5 is very Roman. It doesn't depict the inception. Listen, it doesn't depict the inception of a new relationship. Instead, it depicts the culmination of that relationship. What do you mean, Pastor Phelps? Well, again, put a mark in Ephesians. Come back with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. What does adoption picture? What's he talking about when he talks about this wonderful work of adoption? Romans chapter 8, we read beginning in verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Praise the Lord. That's exactly what John chapter 1 says. As many as receive him, to them he gives power to become sons of God. Verse 15. You've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out the Father. Now the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The technon, we've been born of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be we suffer with Him, 
we may also be glorified. And in verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. Okay, so we're adopted. This passage says, because of our adoption, verse 17, we're joint heirs with Jesus. We participate in all of his inheritance. Follow with me. Because we're adopted, we participate in all the inheritance that Jesus has. We're joint heirs with Jesus. What a mind-blowing status we have. But there's some part of that adoption that's not yet been accomplished. That's verse 23. We're waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our bodies. So just as we have today been chosen of the Father, and just as we have today been given that status of being placed before Him in holiness, we have this blessing of adoption. Now remember I said Romans practiced adoption. They knew and understood adoption. Roman adoption is much like we would consider Jewish bar mitzvah. We understand that at 13, a Jewish boy becomes a man in the community. He's a son of the law. In Rome, when a child was born into the home, he was part of the family. But there came a time in that family when he was adopted. And at the time of his adoption, he received a toga viralis, the toga, the garment of a man. And at that time, all of his inheritance was his to enjoy. Even today, we've been born in the family by the Spirit of God. And so, born into the family by God, we're sons of God. And the Spirit of God convinces us so we can cry even unto Him today, even as children and babes in Christ, we can cry, Abba, Father. But there's a wonderful day of the consummation of our adoption. In that consummation of our adoption, we will be bar mitzvah, toga viralis. We will have all of the airship that has been promised to us, even the redemption of our bodies. That portion of the adoption can't be accomplished this side of heaven. But it will be accomplished because this is the work of the Father. What does the Father do? He remakes us as sons. How does He do it? He does it through the work of predestination. He knows the destiny where we're headed. We're going to be like Jesus. <coughs> and along the way, He gives to us the wonderful promise of a complete, full, satisfying adoption that we have in Jesus Christ. So the Father remakes us as sons through predestination and adoption, a work that will be fully accomplished on the day of our glorification when we become full heirs with Him. And even now we know by certification of the Scriptures that we're joint heirs with Christ. Come back to Ephesians. What is it that we glory in this evening? What is it that's been provided for us? Well, the Father has chosen us before the foundation of the earth. And the Father changes us Praise God, the Father cherishes us. The Bible tells us in verse 16 that we have cause to give praise for His glory. For to the praise of the glory of His grace, and every one of these stanzas inserts that as the recurring theme. To the praise of the glory of His grace, He's made us accepted in the Beloved. Wow. Cherished by the Father. Let me point out that Jesus is the beloved, that Jesus is the beloved. We know that. During his earthly ministry, it was announced in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus coming out of the waters of baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
At his transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Who's the beloved? Jesus is the beloved. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, the apostle Peter reminds us of the fact that he was at the transfiguration. And when he was at the transfiguration, he says, we, he rather, Christ, received from the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is the beloved, and Jesus purposed to bring us to God. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just, listen, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus came to earth to bring us to heaven. And Jesus then makes us accepted in him. We're accepted in the beloved. Remember I told you that throughout the book of Ephesians, you're going to see the words in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And the great joy of Ephesians is understanding our status in Christ. And our status in Christ is this, because of Jesus' work, we're accepted by God, accepted in Him, accepted in the Beloved, in Him. Tis not for works that I have wrought, tis not for gifts that I have brought, nor yet for blessings I have sought that I have been accepted. Tis not for tears that I have shed, tis not for prayers that I have said, nor yet for slavish fear or dread that I have been accepted in the Beloved. Tis not for these, however right, that God has found intense delight, nor is it these that have made me white to wear the robes of those accepted. From those I turn my eyes to him who bore the judgment's dire sin, and by Christ's blood I enter in and stand in his acceptance. His precious blood was shed for me, and in that precious blood I see the righteous ground, the perfect plea for my complete acceptance. And as I gaze, my joys abound, for now, on resurrection ground, I see the Lamb with glory crowned who died for my acceptance. And when within this circle sweet, where God's eternal smile I meet, I'll praise Him for the work complete through which I am accepted. What grace, what grace has been given to us according that He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, for the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.